Welcome back to People Analytics. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton. Today I have with me John Petrusa, who is the Human Resources Director at Weirs. Welcome, John. Good afternoon, Lindsay. It's good to be, or good morning, depending on when. Yeah. So thanks. It's good to be with you. You as well. So I'm excited to have you on the show because, I mean, you we're about to talk analytics, which, you know, anyone who watches the show knows we're all about analytics. So before we do that, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it? So who I am, um, John Petrusha, Human Resources Director for Weirs. Um, my background in human resources began about 157 years ago. Uh, next June, that's the anniversary date. So congratulations. Mark your calendars. So thanks for that. Um, graduate school prepared, certified, charm, all that sort of nuttiness. Um, and uh, I come to analytics with a long history, not just in HR, but also in quality control. So I started my working life in a quality control lab where we did upper lower control limits using Deming's um, uh, equations and stuff like that. So it's just seemed natural to me to apply this to the human resources field as well. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, how you became curious about analytics. Uh, was there something that really piqued your interest and you followed that? Uh, how? Tell me your, your analytics story. So the analytics story probably starts in high school. Nobody wants to hear about that. All math was always appealing to me. And the further I got into uh, more higher level math, um, it, it piqued my interest. Um, and then graduates, or excuse me, early in college, statistics intrigued me as well. Um, and analytics, particularly much a little bit later, I guess, and partly because of my experience and exposure to the tools that Lotus, the spreadsheet tool that was existed before Excel, um, had uh, a lot of analytical tools built into it. And then Excel came along with descriptive statistics and that really increased my interest and utilization, actually, of some of those techniques. Um, and then ultimately landing um, an assistant professorship, if you will, at Loyola University, where I taught analytics at the graduate school level for a bunch of HR folks. And so it's just been a, a long and strange journey. Yeah. <laughs> well, that means it's been a, a good journey if it's been strange. It keeps things exciting, right? Quite, quite. <laughs> so I have a question about, you know, where analytics and people merge for you, because, um, you know, you mentioned being an assistant professor. Did that kind of, you know, you're engaging with people, you're teaching them. Was that kind of a starting point where for you where you thought you could merge the two? So that was actually, Lizzie, to be, um, be honest about it, or be fair about it, it was actually the culmination. So I've been doing human resources for a long time. And using some statistical analysis to do work, um, to do my HR work in things like recruiting, of course. Everybody mm -hmm. does the methodology of statistics with respect to recruiting. And then future uh, succession planning and, and, and that sort of work. Um, and um, using some graphical representation to do organizational culture measurement is really where it took off. Mm. So I was fortunate to, to join a group of individuals who are willing to launch an organization that would do statistical analytics around organizational culture, specifically behavioral 
attributes of organizational culture um, and provide a methodology for measuring that, mm-hmm. reporting on that, and then involved in some in, in interventions to help organization, organizations move the needle uh, with respect to some of those attributes. So that's really where it got its, uh, its engine, I guess, that revved yeah. up for analytics and people. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit about using analytics to inform culture for those who are a little bit new to the topic. So um, in this particular case, what these group of individuals individuals wanted to do was create a tool that would be useful for small businesses. Large organizations have all kinds of resources available to them to hire high quality or high caliber, high priced uh, consulting firms to do analytics, and we felt that there was a need for smaller organizations, organizations of 500 people, 200 people, even smaller, to do some really quality analytics around some of these behavioral attributes that were inherent in high-performing organizations. So there's been a lot of social research about those behavioral attributes, um, and so we developed this tool to simply measure those things and help organizations uh, move the needle with respect to their culture. Mm. That's really awesome. And so tell me where, you know, like quality control has helped you, um, you know, add a little layer of experience to HR, because I feel like as HR professionals and um, people professionals, there's so many opportunities um, for the industry. Um, and when I say when I say that, what I mean is you could be in health and have to apply your skills, your HR skills in the health field, or you could be um, in more of, um, you know, a school, uh, apply those skills to a school. Um, so tell me about how quality control, you know, informed your your experience with HR. So the the, uh, the quality control piece was really just getting comfortable with statistics and the yeah. data analytics around standard deviation and variance and codependent co-variant relationships um, that really started my interest in statistics and then figuring out how to apply those things in the HR world. Um, And um, I I got to the point where I was an advocate for my students anyway, to help them create or think about the HR function from a P&L's perspective. So just do some basic organizations do regarding a profit and loss statement and use those same tools to measure the productivity or the profit and loss or the value of HR uh, to an organization and using, again, some basic statistics, showing some trends um, and projecting some of those trends out into the future to do some forecasting that helps tell the story about who we are as an organization and where we're going. That sounds like a long answer to your very simple question, Lindsay. I hope I get the mark for what you were looking for. You got it. So one thing I remember you saying is that when you went into HR, you were stunned to find how many or how few people engaged with analytics. So tell me about that feeling, um, you know, going into HR and and seeing, you know, kind of a, an, an analytics desert. So thanks. So this... Um, Revelation came to me during my time teaching at the graduate school level when I had students of 25 or 30 students. In the first day of class, I would ask people just sort of generally, what's your experience or comfort level with statistics? 
And the classes were typically made up of graduate school students in both finance, accounting, marketing, and HR. The majority of them were HR because this was the graduate school program in human resources. So I would ask the question, I'd say, oh, show of hands, how many people here know what a standard deviation is and can tell me what it represents? And very few hands went up, uh, which was sad and disappointing to me. Um, and because all the finance people know instantly and all the marketing people go, I can tell you exactly what that yeah. is. Um, so it saddened me that HR people weren't seeing themselves as steeped in the need for understanding analytics. And so my class was around um, uh, understanding research. And what makes up good research is good data and yeah. the validity of good data. And so I, part of the class was helping students understand what that is and what those um, scores are telling them about what is good research so that they could take that research and apply it to their organizations. So being able to understand what statistics is really telling you about validity is important. So that's where it started. And so I spent the next 12 weeks trying to help people understand mm-hmm. what standard deviation is and why it's important. So it was, it was just interesting to me. Now, I know that, um, you know, a big piece of advice that you say is you have to be comfortable with basic statistics if you want to use analytics in HR. So, you know, if for the people who have been out of statistics class for, for some years, do you have any resources or any advice on where to start? So that's great. Uh, Lindsay, I, um, I don't know that I can point people in a direction. For me, it was always about finding where my comfort level is first. And so there's, you know, the good news is there's YouTube, right? So you can learn almost anything you want to learn about in a YouTube video. Right. Uh, and the, the other good news is that, uh, you know, Excel is so powerful as a tool. If I just have some data in a chart, I can ask for it to give me an R value for the slant or the slope or the variation. So it does it for me instantly, which is great. And then the question always is, well, what does that mean? And so, so getting to understand what those things mean is not that hard either. Um, and uh, and so my, if I may, so my my message to my students was that if you want to sit at the big table, right, everybody wants to sit at the big table. They want to be involved in the, you know, the decision where, in the room where it happens. So I said, you know, finance people are talking about forecasting and projections, marketing, sales, forecasting, projections. You've got to be able to do that if you're sitting there at the table. So talking in the language of statistics, forecasting, and projecting where the HR world is for an organization is critical to being able to be accepted, in my opinion, at the big table. That's the, that's the language of business is data. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know you mentioned one, you know, once you get that basic, those basic statistics down, you can move into forecasting. Um, so explain the benefit to force, I guess, as we're talking to um, define <laughs> some, some words or what they mean uh, for anyone who is not familiar with um, the terms. So forecasting, um, is that what you chat about next? Yeah, let's let's talk forecasting. First, you know, what does it mean? (laughs) Yeah, so forecasting is just the ability to project out into the future um, data which exists, the reality which exists today. 
So many of us in HR can do a pretty good demographic, number of females, number of males, number of veterans. We've got all that data today, and we've got some of that data going backwards as well. So we can you know, track all that data and project out into the future where that's likely to go, how many males, how many females, how many ethnicities, and all like that, and be able to project out what those what that demographic picture is going to look like for our future. And then for me, I would like to take that and expand that sort of analytics to include things like skills. So skills inventory within my organization, how many technicians, how many practitioners, how many individual contractors, what are their skill levels today? And then projecting out into the future what that need is going to be like, where are we going to find those people? So that sort of demographic projection um, and be able to meet the needs for the organization in terms of the skills that we're going to need, the kinds of positions that we're going to need, the kinds of people, where they're going to be. Um, all those kinds of things is all about forecasting and projecting. And that comes from a basic set of data from the past. Mm. So what is, I know surveys are usually the big answer on how to collect data, but, um, you know, how do you collect data and how do you ensure it's the the necessary data that you need? So that's great because I, um, I'm a big fan of both qualitative and quantitative data. So just simply asking people's opinion or, you know, do yeah. I like this benefit or do I not is useful data um, as well as the measurement of satisfaction or the measurement, you know, liquid scales and so forth. So um, I'm okay with anecdotal data informing the the analytics um, because for me, uh, it uh, you know, a good HR story needs both. So I need to have the data that says that I know what the data says in terms of the projection, and then I need to have some anecdotal reference, I believe, in order to tell the story of what the organization will look like. So it's, it's, it's more than just simply saying, here's the data point out in the future. So I love that you said the word story because I, I'm a person who never was into numbers um, analytics until I learned that they could tell a story. And so now, you know, as I'm a content strategist, I really, really love digging into those numbers and what they're telling me and how I can make tweaks based on what they're telling me. So let's talk about that storytelling for a minute. Um, you know, what what stories do you look for? Um, and yeah, let's let's talk stories. <laughs> let's talk storytelling. I love storytelling. Me too. Great, uh, great opportunity to be involved in a in a young entrepreneurs group that was talking specifically about storytelling and the power of stories. Um, and um, we could talk a long time about storytelling. And so for me, the story needs to be compelling. The story needs to be compelling in a way that will cause action, somebody to do something uh, or to re- or to think about or see something in a different way. Um, I, I Unfortunately, I see too many stories which are, negative. If we don't this, that bad thing will happen. Well, um, nobody's able to predict the future. And so that, you know, some of those things can be too easily discounted. However, the compelling story is here's what the future can be based on this data that we have today. So let's tell a compelling story about what we want to be in the future, 
who do we want to be, and then how do we get there? Let's have that kind of a story. Um, and then that's much easier, I think, for people to live into and then to marshal forces around that kind of a compelling story. Yeah. Um, and I really like how you mentioned, I, I I think of like, you know, analytics that are in the red, because I, I think of red and green in terms of analytics um, and how red doesn't necessarily have to be bad because it can tell you a lot on how to improve the situation. Um, and so, you know, as someone who is, works with clients, a lot of um, my work is educating, like, no, just because it's red, like, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's get to the story. It's trying to, like, it's screaming something at us. Like, let's get to that story. Um, So let's talk about, you know, what you can find in good analytics and what you can find in bad analytics. So thanks. The thought comes to me as you're tying that, Lindsay, um, of a... um, a number of presentations that I've seen and or been a part of that is uh, basically it's a target, right? So the how, the when, and the why. It's the why that is really the most important question. So if it's red, why? Why is it red? What can we tell from redness, if you will, uh, that can help us understand a situation or a circumstance better? Um, And, uh, I actually did a little bit of a blog post uh, a long time ago about getting to the why. Yeah. Um, and so we know about root cause analysis, right? So getting to the why, be able to uncover the uh, the nature of the reason why something exists the way it does. And so, again, for me, getting to the why is the most important thing um, for being able to uncover the hidden gem, um, the piece that people missed or ran over too quickly, um, I had a interview with a candidate actually just recently who had uh, couldn't put something on their resume because of the reason why they left an organization. And so people are saying, well, that's a red flag. Well, I don't know if it's a red flag. I know that there's some sort of an NDA that exists, and I don't know what the red flag is. So let's have a conversation about getting to the why. Yeah, I love that. And I love the, the comparison to the red flag because... You know, sometimes those red flags, they they need a, a why that you need to discover. Um, so, yeah, I think that gives us a great opportunity to transition to our next topic, which is about the servant leadership model. And, you know, that just that example that you gave you you were an advocate, you know, for that person with the red flag. And I think about, um, you know, the individuals who serve in in people leadership, and they really are advocates. So um, tell me a little bit about your servant leadership model. So servant leadership model that I try to emulate in organizations that I'm a part of, or that have been my clients in the past. And it's a it's a theology, if you will, that comes from uh, Robert Greenleaf is the author of the book. I think it's just simply called Servant Leadership. Uh, and it's about creating this organizational structure around an inverted triangle. So most organizations picture a triangle with the CEO at the top of the pyramid and you know the, the lesser people at the bottom of the pyramid. And, and Greenleaf said, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. The CEOs or the leadership of organizations need to exist so that the rest of the organization can function in a way that serves customers at its top, 
because that's where the magic happens. That's where the game is won or lost when it comes to customers or customer experience. And so Greenleaf literally just took that pyramid and put it upside down and said, this is the way organizations need to think of themselves and the way in which they need to operate. Um, Within that structure, I'm not sure that it was within Greenleaf's theology, but within that theology is this whole idea of internal customers. So CEO serves a group of internal customers who then serve another group of internal customers until we get to the point where it's meeting the external customers who pay for what we want, (laughs) which is income anyway. So yeah, it's that inverted triangle um, that that speaks to a lot of people, seems to me. Um, And it speaks to, if people are of a theological bent, it speaks to a bunch of um, religious sort of models, if you will. Um, And it just, it just speaks to me as a as a way to both operate and to visually see an organization in a completely different paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So it, it really I'm trying to find find the best words because it's it's a model I think is so necessary right now, especially um, where we are um, as a working class you know you see news about strikes and i feel like that model um would really really benefit you know people are asking for um they're asking for what they deserve and i feel um you know if that that model was applied we wouldn't be in a lot of situations we are right now yeah it um um it's a it's a it's a model that really works and works well for organizations that adopt the theology. It's not so much about me. It's about who I serve so that they can do the job that is best suited for the talents and experiences that they have. Those combined um, uh, efforts create organizational inertia, uh, momentum, and success, sustainability too. So it's, it's, um, it's a way to organize that inertia that causes organizations, in my opinion, to be successful. Yeah, and I know uh, Scandinavian Airlines is uh, an example that you really, really enjoy talking about. Uh, so, so what's up with them? <laughs> so that was the that was actually the first place that I heard about this whole inverted triangle um, theology, whereas the CEO of of Scandinavian Airlines was was seeing where customers at a ticketing window had all kinds of problems. They said, my ticket and my seat and my baggage and my whatever issue that those customers had. And so they would be talking to the ticketing agent and the ticketing agent would say, well, I don't know that I can help you with that, but let me talk to my supervisor. So, you know, the customers left there like, uh, uh, what idea? This is just frustrating. And so the Scandinavian Airlines CEO said, look, we've got to empower those people to be able to make the decisions and solve the problem in that moment. And so what do they need? They need support from the rest of the organization. They need to be trusted. They need to be educated. They need to be empowered in order to make those problems go away. And so that's when they did this whole inverted triangle thing that said, we need to push the decision making down to the lowest possible level down. Look at me, up to the highest possible level where it interacts in, uh, with customers so that that experience 
uh, is better for customers. Um, and that particular model actually has now been translated into most of the other airlines. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. And it just, I want to uh, acknowledge, you know, how ingrained it is in our our minds, you know, when you made the correction you made and set up, how ingrained it is for our society to think of customer service or, you know, workers um, that are not CEO or C-suite level, um, you know, as lowers. And, you know, for someone as yourself who champions workers, it's it's so it's so easy to to slip because that's what, you know, I feel like our a larger culture has created and for us. So I, I think the the more the thank you, Lindsay, and the the one of the compelling things for me within that inverted triangle is the empowerment that needs to happen mm-hmm. at the point of that customer interaction. So the person who is trying to meet a customer need has to be empowered to be able to solve that problem. Um, and there's a, an author, a favorite author of mine, um, Michael Abershoff, who wrote a book called It's Your Ship. He is a retired Navy commander who literally changed the culture of the Navy by empowering sailors to solve the problems for which they were hired. Mm. In this case, not hired, but drafted or, or listed. And so empowerment is the most important thing. Um, and uh, if I may take a moment, one of the things that attracts me about new hires in particular, new hires for me have always been people who are less experienced or younger than me. But but the point is that I see two I see very many people who don't understand that they've got the power to solve problems, whether it's HR, whether it's sales, finance, customer service, I don't care. They don't feel like they've got the power to be able to fix things, which is a shame in my opinion. So for me and my HR team, I've always told people that they've got more ability than perhaps they even know and they even see in themselves. Um, and so that issue of empowerment within that servant leadership model is a powerful driver. Creates a great, great, great deal of loyalty, too, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such, I mean, in, in empowerment and autonomy it just gives you such a really good feeling as a worker because I know how many times I've had to um, get approval for a piece of content or how many rounds of approval or people and you just get really frustrated. Um, So it really shows, you know, in in so many different situations or all even all situations at work, um, autonomy is Really, I mean, it helps make things efficient. It helps make people feel like they're trusted. It's it's really an important tool. Yeah, trust is a really big issue. I, I, I see that a lot, actually, in organizations and the clients that I've worked with. And trust is a critical behavioral element in successful, high-performing organizations. It just is. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that we would measure that this group of people, we decided we were going to measure trust as a function of organizational um, behavior. It's it's critical. It's absolutely critical. Empathy is a big, powerful tool as well for the reasons that you mentioned, and trust is really at the top of that list, in my opinion. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your insights on just everything, HR, whether it's analytics or, you know, the, as I call it, as a journalist inverted pyramid. Um, So uh, before we part, is there anything that you think I missed or would like to add? Thanks, Lindsay. I appreciate your willingness to engage with me. I, I do value your time as well. I hope that some of this content has been meaningful to your listeners. Um, it's it's the HR and statistics, analytics, and compelling stories to help organizations be successful is really a passion of mine. And I hope and I wish that more HR people would embrace that as a theology as well. And rather than just be the HR cop, let's be the advocate <laughs> instead, shall we? Let's yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, so if people want to get in touch, where's the best way to do so? So I'm available in lots of different places. LinkedIn is probably the best place. I accept LinkedIn invitations all the time. Um, that's probably the best. Um, if people want to email me at Weirs, that's okay too. Um, I, like lots of people, get inundated with mail all the time. And, and I will tell you that my spam blocker does a bang up job of keeping people <laughs> out, of my, out of my inbox. And so I think, Lindsay, the best place is through LinkedIn. I agree. <laughs> well, if you or anyone you know is like John and wants to kick that HR cop idea to the curb, email me, lindsay at staffgeek.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Staff Geek's People Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton, and I'm always looking to interview leaders who put people first. If you or someone you know lead with a people-first mindset, please email me at lindsay at staffgeek.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y at staffgeek.com. If you want to take things a step deeper and understand your organization's true culture DNA, I encourage you to take Staff Geek's free culture assessment. Just head to staffgeek.com and click the button that says free culture assessment. Thanks again for listening.